Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Jessica, the podcast where I interview experts with the goal to help you worry less about parenting. I'm your host and pediatrician, Dr. Jessica Hockman. Today, we are interviewing my uncle, Dr. Jonathan Matthew, who is a gastroenterologist. Gastroenterologists, commonly referred to as GI specialists, are doctors who treat digestive issues. Today, my uncle and I will discuss common causes of stomach aches. I love talking with my uncle. He's incredibly knowledgeable about practically everything, and he has a great sense of humor. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Jessica. I have one of the most special guests I could ever dream of, one of my favorite people on this planet, and that is my Uncle John, Dr. John Matthew. How are you? Good. I've known you since you were born. (laughs) I remember seeing you the day you were born. 42 years ago. That's right. I I went there. (laughs) We saw you. Oh, my goodness. Dad's brother, my Uncle John, he is a gastroenterologist, and he is a wonderful, wonderful resource for me. I always pick his brain when it comes to GI illnesses. Um, And so I'm excited to have him on here today. We're going to talk all about different causes of stomach aches that teenagers or young adults may face. So how long have you been a GI doctor? So I started my fellowship in 1981, which was a two-year fellowship back then. We did not, we had to do some research, but it isn't like today. We have to do a lot more bench research to be a fellow. And then I started practice in 1983, so approximately 40 years. So what's the most common reason why patients come to see you and specifically maybe the young adults, teenage, teenage years? So in teenage years, the most common thing is abdominal pain, bloating, distension, bowel irregularity. Okay. By bowel irregularity, it's going to be either too much or too little. Those are far and away the most common reasons for kids. So typically it's pain, distension, bowel irregularity. They're uncomfortable. So if a patient comes to you with uh, the typical abdominal discomfort, bloating, distension, what what's the first thing that you ask them? What's your, what's your approach to this? Okay. Very often when kids come in, or teenagers come in, it's not just pain, but I'm bloated. My belly's blown up. It's out to here. It's very uncomfortable. So what I try to explain to them is if you take a plain x-ray of an abdomen, you'll see a gas bubble in the stomach. You'll see gas in the colon. Okay, and they're different gases. Gas in the stomach, stomach that you burp up is swallowed air. It's room air, atmospheric air. Every time you eat, drink, swallow saliva, you shove some room air down there. That can distend the stomach and be uncomfortable, but you feel better when you burp. Yes. Now, some people will swallow a lot of air if they have bad reflux problems, ongoing heartburn, even if they're not aware of it. I'm just thinking if if someone's good at burping and they burp often, it might be a sign of reflux? Might be a sign of reflux, but sometimes it's just a nervous habit. People, I mean, I have patients in my office who will just sit there and burp continuously, and there's no other mechanism other than they're (laughs) swallowing air. Are they coming in because of the burping? Yes, but but when it's that much, it's a nervous habit. And one of my partners who's not, he can be a little rough on people sometimes, he says, all right, open your mouth. It's very hard to swallow with an open mouth, okay? <laughs> okay? And that just stops the burping cold, and that kind of convinces them. That, that's what that is. But often those, that's why those patients are Oh, you're are saying he, he convinces them that it's a habit. He tries. Yeah. Now, gas in the colon mm-hmm. comes from the fermentation of food that you eat that's not absorbed in the small intestine, gets into the colon, and then bacteria chop it into 
gas and other particles. Yes. Okay? Now, a lot of times healthy foods make a lot of gas. I mean, a lot of fiber that we eat, fruits and vegetables, they're filled with dietary fiber, but dietary fiber you can't absorb, right? Right. So it gets into the colon, it gets fermented, and then boom, you start getting distension. And a lot of it can be exacerbated by how well the intestines squeeze. If you have a sluggish colon, it doesn't squeeze well. It just kind of can sit there and blow people up and make them uncomfortable, okay? So that can be helped by trying to be on low-gas diets. I'm sure you put kids on what are called low-FODMAP diets. Yes, can you explain what that is? FODMAP is an acronym for the kind of carbohydrate that tends to be highly fermentable into gas and other particles, okay? Uh, it's an acronym. You could look it up. I, I, I honestly forget the exact wording No, of, of course. And, I, and frankly, it's not important to know, okay? <laughs> the, the actual meaning, I agree. Yeah, but it's but there's a lot of them, okay? And, so, and there's lists you can say, well, these are better than these, and often that'll make people feel better. I was always taught the first thing if someone is having problems is double-check what they're eating because chances are they're making a mistake on their diet. Interesting. Okay. So celiac disease, uh, undiagnosed parasites like Giardia, that does crop up. You had that once. I had that once. I, I remember think I that. I got it doing Habitat for Humanity. I lost nine pounds in a week. How many years ago was that? I remember this. Oh, goodness. Kimberly, my, my daughter, who's now on 37, she was a junior in high school. So over 20 years ago. It's a great diet. <laughs> I'll tell you that. But, you know, it doesn't have to be as bad as I had it. But again, that can cause problems. Yes. Okay. And then the thing you've never... Oh, and just quickly say, how do you avoid getting Giardia? Because it's avoidable. Well, it, it's basically grungy water. I mean, if you go camping and you drink out of a stream, you, you raise your risks. Isn't it from animal poop that makes Could into, be, into... But you do look for it. Yes. Okay. Uh, that's one thing. Um there's the concept of bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine, SIBO, okay. small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. People should be aware that there's bacteria in the gut. And some people, they get what's called bacterial overgrowth. And if there are too many bacteria in the small intestine, that can inhibit absorption. And how do you treat SIBO? Uh, SIBO or SIBO, however you want to pronounce it, you treat it with broad spectrum. Wait, is it better to say SIBO? I don't think it's better at all. It doesn't okay. matter. But it's, <laughs> you, treat it with, you treat it with broad spectrum antibiotics, something to knock down the content. You, you end up sometimes having to treat these patients intermittently every three, four months, give them a round again. So we talked about parasite. We talked about uh, bacterial overgrowth. Inflammatory bowel disease is something that you have to make sure you don't miss in a kid. Because it's more common in teenagers. Yeah. So inflammatory bowel disease, there's two basic types. One is ulcerative colitis. The other is Crohn's disease. Yes, they tend to be genetic and familial, but it can happen in, in any sort of population. Um, and they're usually distinguishable. Sometimes they're not. You get certain kinds of inflammation in the colon where there's a crossover. It has features of both. Okay. The Crohn's disease can affect the gut anywhere from the mouth to the anus. It's an idiopathic disease. That is to say, nobody knows what what the cause is. Uh, certainly, there's a genetic predisposition, familial predisposition, but I've seen it in just about every population there is, okay, every ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. Although, as an aside, I remember as a fellow, um, and it most commonly affects the end of the small bowel. Yes. Okay. So what we call the terminal or end of the ilium or the end of the small bowel, if it gets inflamed, strictured, narrowed, can give cramps, obviously with partial obstruction, bloating, distension, discomfort, loose tools, things like that. When I was a fellow, 
somebody came in with a, on x-ray, a narrowed terminal ilium and pain. And we figured it was Crohn's disease. And it was a patient from Vietnam and the head of GI, Dr. Schwab, he used to say, he said, I've never seen a Vietnamese with Crohn's disease. I don't think that's what this is. And he was right. It turned out she swallowed a uh, chicken bone, which had perforated the ileum, caused a, an infection and an abscess. And that's why the ileum was narrow. Oh, gosh. So it sounds to me like when people come in to see you with stomach aches, there's a lot you have to think about. There's a lot you have to think about, but you also have to, and particularly in teenagers, you don't want to abuse them with tests, I don't think. No. I don't think that's a good thing to do. <laughs> I agree. Okay. Um, for example, I rarely put kids through and teenagers through endoscopy or colonoscopy unless it's really under the gun and I've got to do it because they do not want to get prepped meaning take a bunch of laxatives to clean out, and they do not want to come in and get sedated and knocked down and get sculpted unless you absolutely have to do it. I appreciate okay. that about you. You're not Well, a- look, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I'm sure in, in pediatric gastroenterologists, I'm sure they scope a lot, and I'm sure it's justified. But I feel like you would know when to worry and when, when to justify it. Well, if, if they don't have real significant signs of colitis, I'm chance I'm not going to find anything in the colon, okay? Like I scoped a young woman today. She was in her 20s. I've known her for a long time. And at some point I diagnosed her. She both had Clostridium difficile, a kind of infection, but she also had proctitis, which is an inflammation of the rectum. Okay. And she came in flaring, more diarrhea, more bleeding. I treated the proctitis. She wasn't getting better. Um, I, I checked her for C. difficile. There wasn't C. difficile. Gee, at some point I've got to take a look. So I scoped her today and the rectum was minimally inflamed. And then it became normal. I kept going and boom. Her descending colon was badly inflamed. She was one of the, I don't know, 10 to 15% of people with rectal inflammation where finally it moved north. Now she has full-blown ulcerative colitis, although with what we call skip areas, normal areas, she might have Crohn's disease, but the treatment will be the same. She'll That's end, too bad. She'll end up going on steroids short-term. She doesn't get better. She'll go on what's called a biologic infusion, a monoclonal antibody to improve inflammation. And we have those these days, and they work really well. Uh, they all have potential side effects and complications. They do affect the immune system. So they raise the risks of infection, okay? And they raise the risks of certain tumors like lymphoproliferative disorders, lymphomas. Now, the risk is still low. If I tell somebody this is going to triple your risk of getting a lymphoma, but your risk of lymphoma is 2 in 10,000, and this will raise it to 6 in 10,000. Those are approximately the numbers. It's still pretty low. Yes. And if you say, well, we're not going to use it because of that, that means 10,000 people have miserable lives because of inflammatory bowel disease. So you're a fan of the monoclonal antibodies. I, well, I am too. I, yes, because they make people's they lives better. Absolutely. I want to bring this back to diet and how to help someone with stomach aches that has um, that doesn't have the best diet. What do you see as the most helpful? I know we talked about the FODMAP diet. Is, okay. Would you say that's the most effective for stomach aches? One thing. Yes. And the other thing is making sure they empty their colon. Okay. Okay. Because a lot of stomach aches are caused by backed up colons. So being constipated. Being constipated. And and different things happen when you're constipated because hormones are chemicals that work throughout the bloodstream, like thyroid, testosterone, estrogen, right, cortisone. There are a variety of intestinal hormones that most people don't think about, and they affect gut function. So, for example, when you eat a meal, certain hormones get released that make the colon contract. We call it a gastrocolic reflex. That's not a 
hammer reflex, but that's why people often move their bowels after a meal. It's not that the food is shoving it out. It's that there's a hormone effect on the colon to make it contract. Conversely, with a backed up colon, hormones get released to slow the emptying of the stomach. Okay. So if you have a slow emptying stomach, it means you eat and food just sits there and that's very uncomfortable. Personal example. Yes. Many years ago, <laughs> Hillary, my wife and I went to Hawaii. And when you travel, people's bowels get mucked up. And one night we went out to dinner at a place called Plantation Gardens, a gorgeous restaurant. And I was young and always hungry. And I sat there at dinner looking at my salad saying, I must be sick. I can't eat. I had no appetite. Well, what had happened was we'd been there four or five days. I hadn't gone to the bathroom. I just couldn't eat. And I thought I was sick. We went back to the room that night. Suddenly, whoosh, I cleared out like I was starving. And we all have that experience that we're much happier with an empty colon. Okay? So in kids, if they get backed up or constipated, you got to get them to empty their colons because everything works better. Everybody's happier with an empty colon. That is true. Okay. Do you think people should be going every day, every other day? It What's depends your... what, what they're comfortable with. Yes. Okay. But it's the rate we, I was taught in GI school, normal could be three times a day to once a week. Well, that may be true, but if somebody is comfortable at once a week, be my guest. Most people are not going to be comfortable at once a week. They're just not. Pressure's going to build up. It's going to get uncomfortable. The stomach's not going to empty well. They're not going to be happier. Do you feel like diet's the most common culprit? I don't know, honestly. I think it's more that's the nature of the patient. The value of, of food is holding on to fluid so there's more lubrication in the colon to empty easier. Because oh, I interesting. put it to patients that if you have a tight ring on your finger, how do you get it off? Do you either push real hard, which is uncomfortable, or you lick your finger and you slide it off? So the value of food a lot of times is holding on to fluid bulking it up so it's easier for the squeeze that is there to shove things around. Is so that why water is so important to, or liquids are so important to consume? Yes, but to you not can't just drink liquid. Right. Because if you just drink liquid and eat matzah, all you're going to do is absorb the water and urinate a lot. So you need things that hold on to fluid. And that's why fiber is helpful. The downside in fiber for some patients is Sometimes fiber, in addition to holding on to fluid, is fermented into gas particles. So then it's a race between do you empty more or make gas more? So, for example, Metamucil, which is a common fiber supplement we give people, some people swear by it. Other people say, oh, I was miserable on it. So just to just to clarify this, so if somebody has, you diagnose them with IBS, what is the basic advice that you give them? We, okay. Just to go through it's, it. It's, first of all, understand... What I try to tell kids and I try to tell, and I tell adults also is first, it's real common. Okay. It's arguably the most common problem any gastro, general gastroenterology sees anywhere on the world, whatever continent you go to. So if you, if you, if you think you're unique or alone, I promise you, you are not. And if your friends aren't telling you about it because they don't talk to strangers about their bowels but they'll talk to me about their bowels because sometimes misery loves company realizing they're not alone. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And realizing I'm not strange because I'm complaining about my bowels all the time. No, you're not. I remember once going back to the GI department at UCLA to visit some people 
And I walked in the office of, you remember, I'm not going to mention his name. He was a famous dean of admissions and he was a gastroenterologist. And I hear him on the phone talking to some guy, well, you got to have her take fiber and you got to do this. And she could use glycerin suppositories and he hangs up and he probably shouldn't have said the name, but it was the name of a very famous Miss America at the time. Wow. Wouldn't mean anything to you. Meant something to me back then. I went, Oh, okay. Well, it's just if she can have it. Anyone can if have she it. She can have it. Any. It's just real, real common. Okay. So you're not alone. That's first of all. So how to make you better? You got to keep pressure down in the bowels. That means get your colon moving, and try to reduce gas production. Those are the biggest things you can do for people. Honestly, most of them, if they can keep enough fluid in their colon and empty their colon and keep the gas foods down, they're going to be okay. And when you talk, just to clarify, when he talks about the gas foods, if you Google FODMAP, F-O-D-M-A-P, right. you'll find the whole list. And then there's a lot of good apps, actually, that a lot of patients use to track their yes. high gas but, but food But you don't have to be a fundamentalist about it. No. You can avoid the biggest ones. Okay. I'll be living on broccoli, cabbage, and cauliflower is <laughs> not, not a, a good, good idea. idea. <laughs> I'll tell you an interesting gas producer of diet sugars. Oh, yes. Okay. Because the reason they're dietetic is you can taste them, but not absorb them. So when they get into the colon, they get fermented and will give symptoms. So diet sugars, for example. So you get people, it's not common, but someone who chews certain diet gums all day long or sucks on diet candy all day long may have problems. Uh, it's the sorbitol, right? Sorbitol. The sorbitol sugar. Carbonation can be a problem in people. Okay, if you're drinking too much in the way of soda, now it's carbon dioxide, so theoretically that gets absorbed pretty quickly and out of your system, but until it does, it can expand things out and give you a lot of bloating and discomfort. Okay, so there's dietary management. Like what's the most common regimen, if someone comes in with IBS, when they leave your office, what's the most common advice that you give them? Okay, so there's going to be something to make sure their colons are emptying better. Okay. Be it fiber supplements, stool softeners. If they're a tough constipation case, rarely things like Miralax or periodic use of magnesium. Trying to avoid things that will slow down the colon. Try to avoid the big gas producers. Now, if they have up top symptoms, nausea, a lot of indigestion, what we call dyspepsia, I'll often give them an, an empiric trial of an acid blocker to see if they feel better. And do you find that these patients get better or is it something that they're dealing with for four years on end? The irritable bowel tends to wax and wane. Okay. Meaning it's, it's it, what I, but, but it's important to know that, for example, if you eat the wrong foods, you may get uncomfortable, but you're not going to damage yourself. Nothing bad is going to happen. They need to be warned when to come in. For example, fever, vomiting hurts to walk, things like that, that are really, then you want to get checked because you don't want to miss acute appendicitis. Of course not. And and, and just so everybody knows where, where, uh, where on the stomach do is, we... Is the appendix? Yes, is the appendix. Where should parents be paying okay, attention? Okay, so the appendix, well, here's the problem with that. The appendix is like a little worm-like structure, little outpouching. It's in what's called the cecum, which is the first part of the colon, which is in the right lower quadrant in most people. So the okay. right lower part of the stomach. Yes, however... With appendicitis, the initial discomfort can virtually appear anywhere in the gut. So it's most common, for example, around the belly button or up in the stomach area with nausea and pain. And sometimes, depending upon where the appendix tip is, 
It may fool you and be in the left side of the abdomen, the upper part of the abdomen. So if the appendix is in and you're worried about acute belly aches, I always worried about appendicitis. Okay, so really bad stomach aches, hard fever, to walk, fever. Hard, so we call hard to walk means you're jiggling the abdomen. When you jiggle the abdomen and it hurts, that's like what we call a peritoneal sign of inflammation. Yes. Want to hear a story about that one? Of course. Many years ago, I was invited to a wedding of a gastroenterologist. It was at a temple over the hill. So I was young. Hillary was young. Our kids were babies. We had nurses as babysitters. This is pre-cell phone. I'm sitting at a table with the chief of GI, Dr. Schwabi, the dean of admissions, Dr. Pops, who was a gastroenterologist, and another gastroenterologist in private practice, and Hillary and I. And the whole place is teeming with surgeons and gastroenterologists because the guy getting married was a prominent gastroenterologist. So Hillary goes to call the babysitter to see how the kids are. And she comes back to the table, again, pre-cell phone. She says, the kids are fine. Your brother, your dad, called, and he's having a lot of abdominal pain. So I got to go call my brother. Everybody at the table kind of pays attention because all they care about in life is abdominal pain. So I sit down at the table, and my chief, Dr. Schwabi, looks at me. He says, so how's your brother? He said, he's feeling a little bit better. He says, oh, does he still have an appendix? I go, yes, Dr. Schwabi. He goes, oh. I said, I know. So <laughs> as soon as I got home, I called Andy. He was feeling better. The next morning, he wasn't feeling better. I walked him into the emergency room. Every time he put his right foot down, it hurt. So I said, this is classic appendicitis. Question about uh, probiotics, because okay. so many people take probiotics. They're very in vogue. And my question is, when do you recommend them? Do you recommend them? Are they helpful? In some cases, for sure, they're helpful. Okay. Um, but not in... But I can't prove it in the most of the time that we use it, okay? Meaning a lot of times people go on antibiotics, they take a probiotic to replenish their gut bacteria. A lot of times people say, I have upset stomach, I have this, I have that, I take a probiotic. I have nothing to measure in general. By measure, I mean if you have high blood pressure, you don't have to tell me anything. I'll take your arm and take your blood pressure. If you have ulcerative colitis, it's pretty objective, the questions. How many bowel movements a day? How much blood are you seeing? Or I can look in there. With a probiotic is, does it make you feel better? I can't measure anything in particular. So if people take a probiotic and they say, I feel better, I move my bowels better, great, keep at it. If they say, I don't think it's doing anything, I don't feel any different, I'm not sure what it's doing. So and someone I, said to you, doctor, what probiotic should I take? I want to take a probiotic. Do you have a... I like a line, A-L-I-G-N, because it's pretty broad spectrum. I, I certainly don't like the ones, and maybe it's not fair to say this, that's mixed with yogurt. Because, you don't? because if you have somebody who's lactose intolerant and trying to take a probiotic, it's like, okay. well, gee, maybe it's the problem is the yogurt. But don't they always say that yogurts have the live active cultures and that's yeah, but, a healthy but, way to but, get... Well, if it's a probiotic, there's all live. I mean, you don't, you're not drinking in dead bacteria. Right. Hopefully. <laughs> right. That, that doesn't do anything. Uh, but again, I, I think a lot of probiotic is empiric therapy. That is to say, do you feel better? You know, are the result, are the clinical outcomes better? Fortunately, I don't think it does any harm. Premium no no seri, right? First do no harm. So if you're taking something that's not going to hurt you, but I certainly don't mind. Right. That's different, for example, than taking antibiotics, which always have the potential to give problems. Right. Or any of these other medications. Uncle John, you have the best stories always. Well, stories are a great way to teach sometimes. I have a question. People always ask about you know, pooping comes up a lot and people want to know what's what's the longest you can go 
without there being an emergency or problem? Well, everything is different because, for example, if if you can be backed up and go all the time if it's just not enough and it keeps building up, building up, building up, okay? So if somebody doesn't go for, say, two or three, you know, for three days or so, you want to start thinking about it. Okay. Bear in mind, the longer stool sits there, the more salt and water get absorbed by the wall of the colon, makes it more difficult to get out. People will get what are called stir coral ulcerations. That is to say, pressure sores from, mm. from the effective stool on the wall of the colon. Those can be problems. They can get them in the rectum. Yes. Okay. So, like I said, you're not going to get into trouble with three days of constipation. But if somebody's barely going, because the problem is, the more they don't go, the more difficult it is to go, the more painful it is to go. Yes. So you want to try to tack it earlier rather than later. Um, I, I know we've, we've, we've kidded about some of these things, but honest to God, I had one mortality from constipation in my career. One. One. Wow. It, it was, it was a mentally disturbed gentleman. He was about 20 years old. He went to Tarzana emergency room with constipation. They gave him some stuff. And then he came to West Hills nine months later and said to me, he said, yeah, I hadn't had a bowel movement in nine months. Okay? Do you think that was true? Yeah, because his belly was blown up like he was 12 months pregnant, and it was like a rock. Okay? Meaning, now, when people come in badly constantly. That's terrible. Nine terrible. months? He was crazy because who stays at home like that? I told you he was mental. So patients who get badly constipated can get what's called a fecal impaction. That is to say where it's so stuck in the colon, they can't evacuate. So what do you do for that? I don't know if it happens in little kids, but in adults it certainly happens. You have to literally disimpact them, do rectal exams, and break up the stool and yank it out of there. It's very uncomfortable. Yes. Okay? So I went to try it in this guy, and it was like concrete. And there was no way I was going to be able to dig out that much stool. So I called a surgeon, and I said... He needs surgery. I can't get rid of this. Okay. Now, what happens is when you start distending the bowel wall, okay, it gets very tense. Wall tension. Physics. Law of Laplace. What is it? <laughs> no. Don't remember? T equals PR. Wall tension is proportional to uh, pressure and radius. Okay. So it got very distended. You can't get blood flow in there. So you get what's called ischemia. So the surgeon took him to surgery, and at that point, he started having what's called ischemic bowel. Invariably, there was fecal spill in the abdominal cavity trying to evacuate all that. He got diffuse peritonitis and died of sepsis. So you're saying so people understand that the poop broke into the stomach while where it shouldn't be. Right, but it starts the bacteria because got when in it was there. stretching so much. Now, you understand, I've seen one case like this in 40 years of GI and I haven't seen anything close to that. Okay. So that's, that's kind of a wonder. Okay. Meaning I wouldn't go at home thinking, Oh my God. Yeah. I'm going to three days. Something's going to happen. That's not what I'm talking about. So please don't go home freaking out about that <laughs> was a, was a problem of mentally disturbed situation, bad problem lost in the system. How did you pick GI, by the way? How did I, mean, I how pick does one GI? pick, how does one pick a gastroenterology? Yes. So. When I was a resident, I did my residency at UCLA, which was a pretty high-rent place for residency on the West Coast. I mean, there was UCLA, there was Stanford, a Harbor General, Washington. Those were the big places. You want to do a, a fellowship in something. It's that kind of residency. What to do? The head of cardiology at the time 
I guess this is going over the airways. He retired now. I'm not going to mention the name. Was, and I could use epithets. He was not a nice human being. Okay. You got it. Oncology was depressing. Okay. The head of GI was a guy named Art Schwabi, who was a great teacher. He won Golden Apple Teaching Awards. He knew everything about medicine and he made it fun. Rounding with him, GI with him was just fun. Okay. And this is before endoscopy was really huge. I mean, you didn't go to it back, you know, today they go into it like, oh, I can do a lot of endoscopy, make a lot of money. Back then, endoscopy was not that common. But I went to it because Schwabi just made it fun. He was a great professor. You'd watch him interact on, on rounds and you'd watch him interact with professors, with big donors, with surgeons, with janitors, all the same. I remember once on rounds, we're all sitting there leaning against the wall and he's talking and a janitor was going down the hallway at UCLA and something fell off his cart and Schwabi's talking to us and he's looking at us and we're not making a move. He stops mid-sentence, runs over, picks up the stuff, goes running down the hall to the janitor, goes, excuse me, sir, this fell out of your cart, you dropped this, comes back to us, gives us a look like, did I have to do that? And then just goes on. He was just a nice, nice man. Um, at UCLA, if you remember, were you in the old hospital or the new hospital? New hospital. Okay, well, the old hospital, the top two floors were called the Wilson Pavilion, where rich, fancy people would go. The ninth floor was, I think, surgery, medicine was 10, one of those things. And you'd go up there, you'd see, like, somebody in the movie, somebody really rich, big donors, whatever. And they all wanted to be catered to, okay? And Schwabi just treated everybody nicely, and he wasn't impressed by a movie star. And I mentioned this to him to one day that he just didn't seem... He was very blasé about who he was meeting. He looks at me with a very serious face. He says, from my end, they all look the same. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's a good... (laughs) That was Schwabi. That's why I went into GI. Change. Thank you so much for coming on. I always learn from you. I love you so much. I love you too, sweetie. And I appreciate... Appreciate you coming on. Well, this concludes this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. I wanted to say a sincere thank you to all of you who are leaving reviews and spreading the word. Last week's episode was downloaded in 10 different countries, which I find so exciting. So thank you so much. We'll see you next Monday.